Do progressives spend enough time challenging the multiple oppressions that disabled people face? Have we spent enough time understanding the frameworks that disabled activists use to comprehend the world and guide their action? And have we properly considered how an understanding of the issues of disabled people could give us a deeper understanding of capitalism itself? My guest today thinks the answer to all of these questions is no, so it could be a challenging conversation. I'm joined by Ellen Clifford. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Thank you, Michael. We should begin with a congratulations because Ellen's recent book has just won the Bread and Roses Award for Radical Publishing, The War on Disabled People, Capitalism, Welfare and the Making of a Human Catastrophe is the book that most of our conversation today will be based upon. Um, I want to start with the basics. Um, what is disability and why should our audience become familiar with this, this concept of the social model of disability? So I think most of what most people think they know about disability is actually wrong. So for disabled people who are politicised and, and part of the disabled people's movement, for us disability is actually the oppression that people living with impairments or illnesses or, or differences um, experience. So it's an oppression that society imposes on top of the existing pain or distress that we might already live with. I think it's a mistake to think that what we call the social model of disability, which draws a, a difference between disability, which, as I said, we see as oppression uh, and impairment and illness. It's a mistake to see the social model as denying pain and distress. I mean, that's a, a criticism that some people make. What it essentially is, is a tool for social change, through the social model of disability, people with a, a wide variety of illnesses, impairments, it could be sensory, blindness, uh, mental distress, learning difficulties, autism, etc. All of us can unite under that umbrella of being disabled and being oppressed by society. And through that, we can therefore uh, collectivise uh, and fight for social change. So the social model of disability is a very empowering concept. And I do think it's not a moral issue for me. I don't think that progressives who don't engage with the social model are bad people. We know that the, the, the ideas that are dominant in society at any one time are the ideas of the ruling class. They're there to divide the working class and, and, and keep us exploited um, and weak. Um, the dominant idea of disability in society is one whereby we're seen as essentially burdens on society. We're objects of pity. Uh, disability is then a matter of, of personal personal tragedy. Whereas for politicised disabled people, disability is an intensely political issue and it's also one for collective action. Mm. And I suppose the, the political element and where this might differ from people's previous or, or the more conventional understanding of disability is that one could be, on the conventional understanding, born disabled. If you were born disabled in Britain in, in 2010, that's similar to being born disabled in some other time and place. Whereas on the social model, you could be born with an impairment. So you can be born not being able to see or, or hear or, or walk, but you only become disabled because of how a social structure makes those impairments hold you back in life. Is that that's it. Is that, is that it? That's very impressive. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't trying to show off. Um, let's, let's talk about disability as personal tragedy, because something you talk about in your book is how the conventional way of talking about disability is to say, oh, um, what a pity that these vulnerable people are, are like this. Um, what we have to do is come forward with, with charitable attitudes and charitable policies and help them out. And you 
don't like that way of talking about disability. Could you, could you explain why? That way of looking at disability really locates the problem of disability inside the individual rather than looking at the socioeconomic structures which actually oppress people with impairments and illnesses. It's not inevitable that people with impairments and illnesses, and as I've said, there's a wide variety of those, it's not inevitable that we should be excluded from society. Capitalism under capitalism with its rampant uh, ideology of individualism, uh, people believe that if you cannot survive on your own, you can't earn your own living, then it's inevitable you will be marginalised and excluded. Uh, from our position as, as disabled activists, what we're saying is this isn't inevitable at all. There can be different choices that are, that are made. There can be different ways of organising society. Um, ones that are built upon interdependence and collectivity uh, through cooperation rather than competition. And we actually actually believe that that's a way that, that humans can actually, all humans can, can flourish. And is this a, a speculative thing or something that you can point to historical examples of? Are there people who are, or impairments which make someone disabled in capitalist society, which have not made people disabled in, in other times and places? Or even within under capitalism itself, you can point to examples. So actually, uh, I think pe people think of disability as something static because people link it to uh, what are seen as bodily or mental deficits. But actually, like you say, being disabled, that, that the process of being excluded from society, uh, that, that changes. Who, who, who is covered by that changes. So it's actually now much harder for... Um, disabled people to be in employment now that we've got a customer service sector in Britain, whereas when it was manual industry, it was actually easier, interestingly, for disabled people to be in employment. And the myth that was, you know, that, that we had under, uh, under Thatcher, uh, after Thatcher, the idea that Thatcher tried to, you know, fix the unemployment figures by putting people on in capacity. And then you had under John Major's government, under New Labour, there came about this myth, and I, I'm sure it is a myth, that uh, there were large numbers of uh, people who were on incapacity who could actually work. They were supposedly fit for work. But actually, research has proven that rather than that being the case, what actually, uh, uh, and the case of uh, incapacity masking unemployment, that was the idea uh, around that was used to justify welfare reform. What we actually now understand through research is that it's actually employment that masks, masks disability. So someone might not even uh, experience oppression because of having an impairment or illness until they become unemployed and then try to take another job. And they then realise that there are all these other reasons, these bar barriers to employment. In a previous job, they might have fitted in. Um, but when they're trying to get a new job, they suddenly realise that actually there's no place for them to go where they can fit in. They then become disabled, whereas they weren't previously. Well, that's incredibly interesting. So, so on this model, you, you would say there were, there were impairments that someone could have been born with in the 1960s, when we had a manufacturing industrial-based economy, which now we have a service-based, customer service-based economy, those impairments would make you disabled. Or could have, could have acquired, people could have acquired it. So uh, what, what, what are we talking about now? What, what kind of impairments? Um, 
For me, I think one of the biggest reasons why uh, it's harder now for people to be employed in the customer service sector, I think, is more around people who experience mental distress, who may be neurodivergent, may have learning difficulties, because the kind of customer service jobs require communication and social skills and can be very pressured in that regard. Um, when you look at the figures for people who were in what was called the Employment and Support Allowance Work-Related Activity Group, the DWP, love all these long words because it makes it really difficult to do media sound bites about what's happening to welfare reform. So under, under welfare reform, there was this group of people, the ESA RAG group. And the idea of that was you were kind of like halfway between unfit for work and fit for work. Um, the biggest group within that was what they called mental and behavioural disorders. So that's people with mental distress, learning difficulties, neurodivergence, etc. Um, and I think there are there are some good arguments why people in that group actually find it much harder to find employment than people who might be found actually unfit for work, mm-hmm. who are, are more severely disabled. If you look at kind of like bodily issues, uh, but. But would it be fair to say that people who suffer from those mental impairments or mental distress, they're taken less seriously than than people with physical impairments because of our our conventional understanding of what disability is? Because it's hidden, yes. Let's move on from from definitions and concepts and talk about the history of of the disabled people's movement. Most of your book is focused on on the backlash or, or the fight against austerity policies from 2010 onwards. But I also found really interesting your your exploration of previous disabled people's movements and particularly movements for for integration and against segregation. So could you could you explain what those movements were about and when that occurred? So the current disabled people's movement traces our origins back to what we call the independent living movement. So that actually started in Berkeley in California in the 1970s when a group of disabled students wanted to live alongside other students and not be um, not be segregated away into dorms. Um, they fought for that and they set up a centre for independent living that provided equipment, support, advice for disabled people to live in the community alongside other disabled people. And, and interestingly aside, I, I love the fact that, that they had a good relationship with the, with the Black Panthers. Um, great example of solidarity in action. The independent living movement spread to Britain and uh, the Union of Physically Impaired Against Segregation was famously set up after a disabled man named Paul Hunt wrote a letter to The Guardian wanting to get in contact with other disabled people who felt similarly that disability was actually an oppression. Um, And they set up this group and they used to write to each other actually by hand and they had newsletters that that were posted to each other and they started a discussion and developed an idea of disability as oppression. And that was actually, you know, that, that was a radical idea then and they had debates among themselves about whether it was a form of oppression or not because they'd so internalised the idea of disability as, as personal tragedy. Um, a guy called Vink, Vic Finkelstein, who'd acquired um, an impairment, came over from South Africa. He had to leave because he was an active anti-apartheid campaigner. And he drew parallels between the oppression that disabled people face and the oppression of black people in South Africa. And, and, and he played a, a very important role in developing 
those ideas. Um, as you can tell by the name, it was dominated by people with physical impairment um, because that's the way uh, services for disabled people were structured on an impairment segregation basis. So they managed to fight for the right for disabled people to live in the community alongside non-disabled people. And that gradually spread to other people with different forms of impairment. So that was the, the first battle, if you like. Um, and that, that's what we trace our, our current movement back to. And, and concretely, what was being fought for then was the right to, to live in, in society in an inclusive way? or because The right what, to live in society, full stop. Because people were segregated in, in homes, essentially. Yes, they were segregated in homes. Uh, and that was a development from, if you look way back, with the rise of capitalism, uh, asylums, workhouses grew up to uh, remove those considered unproductive in society, to remove them from society, stop interfering in the process of, of productivity, um, to warehouse them. They were, there were terrible abuses. There were no rights uh, within these places. And actually, the welfare settlement didn't change that. Disabled people were deliberately left out of the welfare settlement, Beveridge being a keen eugenicist who believed we needed the whip of starvation to make sure people didn't malinger. So he was against things like disability benefits. And the welfare settlement didn't change uh, the fact that the majority of disabled people in society at that time had no choice. They were incarcerated in long-stay institutions where, like I say, horrendous abuses used to go on. There's a, a couple of books that were written around 1969 and then not early 1970s. Um, one of them describes conditions in a institution for disabled children. It describes disabled children dragging themselves out to the courtyard to drink from puddles of water, for example. Nobody had their own toothbrushes. Um, people, you know, children and adults could, could very easily disappear if a member of staff didn't like them and they were treated too roughly. There were, there were murders in these places as well as sexual and physical Abuse. So the fight to escape those places was obviously a very important one for disabled people. Um, unfortunately, quite a lot of the, the cultures, the, uh, uh, the cultures, the power dynamics between staff and disabled people followed uh, the move out of the big institutions into smaller housing. So for disabled people, it's always been really important to be able to live in your own home where you have choice, like choice what time you go to bed, control over the support you receive. And essentially what that's about is freedom from abuse. So that's what the fight was about, really. But also just having the same chances in life as everyone else for employment, to go to the same um, leisure activities as everyone else. Mm. And, and schools would come into this as well. So, so the, the, the movement schools. against specialist schools to say, let's actually have SEN departments or special needs departments in conventional mainstream schools. Yeah. And so kids meet each other. Mainstream education is really important for life chances for disabled people, but also for society in general. Um, a very important report came out from the Equality and Human Rights Commission in about 2010, and it covered um, the phenomenon disability hate crime, but also at the most extreme end, uh, whereby disabled people are tortured over can be you know a length of time um and eventually murdered this is quite a common phenomenon in in society um and 
it, there's a level of hostility towards the disabled victims that, that is particularly nasty. Um, and in the introduction to this report, the point is made that inclusive education is incredibly important because it takes away the us and them. If children grow up together, then it, it removes that othering of disabled people, which is such a problem and leads to, to such dreadful examples of hate crime. Are there any circumstances where you'd, you'd accept some form of segregation? You know, if, if there were impairments that were, you know, so severe that a kid was struggling in, in mainstream education, you know, are there exceptions here? Um, you're going to get me in trouble here now. <laughs> I, I actually <laughs> um, um, slightly different from many disabled colleagues in the regard that I think there's an argument for deaf schools. And the reason for that is that British Sign Language is a completely different language to a written or spoken one. I think that the, well, I know that the development of, of language is, is very important for intellectual development, to be able to communicate, therefore, for mental well-being. And deaf children can be incredibly isolated and lonely if they don't have the opportunity to be able to communicate with peers. Um, hearing parents often don't have access to British Sign Language, so you could be, you could be living a life where you know, no one, you, you can't communicate on an equal basis with anyone. Um, it's really important in the interest of, of developing um, a language, like British Sign Language, that the people are interacting together. If the only way you experience the world is through an interpreter next to you, then that's quite limiting, mm -hmm. especially in an era of cuts whereby communication support workers often are only trained to a very basic level of British Sign Language. And that means that the deaf child is never going to develop their own language beyond um, basic. Uh, but that's a very, very controversial point within the disabled people's movement. Um, let's, let's, you mentioned cuts, let's, let's, let's fast forward to, to 2010. Um, the main topic of your book is the war on, on disabled people, which was launched from, from 2010. Why do, you, why do you call that a war? What was the war on disabled people? So we use the term war to refer to a programme of government legislation and policy measures that deliberately and systematically took backwards disabled people's living standards. It happened on such a scale that millions of disabled people were affected. Also, of course, you know, their, their families um, and uh, communities around them. The impact of welfare reform and cuts, that there being an cumulative impact between, for example, cuts in social care and changes to, to benefit assessments has caused considerable harm to people. Um, on one level, stress, distress, anxiety. Uh, and then we've also got the fact that death has, in the words of the disabled journalist Francis Ryan, become a normal part of our benefit system. Uh, people do take their own lives. People um, have died of starvation because their incomes have, have been cut. The United Nations in 2016 made an unprecedented finding that the UK government is guilty of grave and systematic violations of disabled people's Right, so they weren't by that saying that conditions are worse in Britain for disabled people than in other parts of the world. What they were saying was things have not only gone backwards, but they've been driven deliberately backwards. 
So that's what we describe as the war. But I think one of the points I make in the book that I think is important is to understand that while the particular governments and administrations that have been in power since 2016 did have a deliberate economic agenda and they didn't care about the impacts on disabled people, but that by changing the government, you aren't necessarily go, well, I believe that that, that under the socioeconomic system we live under, um, there's always going to be a struggle for disabled people um, because of the relationship between capitalism and disability. Mm. I, I suppose that links to you know, two different ways of, of looking at the the causes of and the reasons for the, the war on disabled people. So I, I think the mainstream conventional analysis is that George Osborne really wanted to cut the budget. Um, he, 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 he thought the, the country was spending too much and for whatever reason he, he wanted to, to lower the spending levels and he was picking out easy targets. He was picking out people who he didn't think had, had much of a voice in, in civil society and many of whom might not vote Tory anyway. So he decided that disabled people were right picking to 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 pinch some pennies the analysis which i, I think comes out more, more in your book is that this was it was about capitalism more generally and that disabled people were being used as a tool to discipline non-disabled people to say you don't try and get out of work by saying that you find it difficult you guys have to go to work because the alternative is miserable we're going to make the life of, of disabled people incredibly miserable so you don't want to say you're disabled Am I correctly sort of summarising what you're getting at? Yes. I mean, I think actually that both of those things were going on. Um, Ian Duncan Smith did say when he famously resigned in March 2016 and pretended to be a champion of disabled people, which was quite laughable to us. He did say that 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 was what was going on, that he was being made to make cuts um, to disabled people because they don't vote for us. Um, I think that was an element. Um, I think there was also a, a third element, if you like, which was about uh, privatisation of um, welfare. Um, Lord Freud had actually crossed the floor from New Labour to the Tories to be able to carry out his grand vision of marketisation for the welfare sector, which actually hasn't hasn't worked out. But but that was also an element within it. And of course, nobody gave any thought to what would happen when all these three elements came together. Uh, but I think that what you've described, the disciplining of benefit claimants um, is is a factor and I'm not sure that within the disabled community we had given that one enough thought. I think there was a tendency to uh, demonise, obviously, the demonise the, the ministers who were bringing in these measures without understanding maybe that fundamental relationship between disability and claiming benefits and what's happening in the labour market. And definitely, I think the reason why it's become, it's been made so difficult to claim benefits is 
because it's becoming harder and harder in work with the rise of insecure employment, with intensification of labour, lower pay. Uh, conditions are so difficult there that you have to then make sure that being on benefits is even more unbearable. Um, and what happened with that is the introduction and the entrenchment through universal credit of uh, conditionality and sanctions. Um, and thought just hadn't been given to the numbers of people who would be subject to that, who are simply unable to fulfil the work requirements they were being made to do. So research showed clearly that disabled people were being discriminated against by the sanctions regime. What's happened now under universal credit is they no longer disaggregate the statistics. So we can't actually tell now if disabled people are still being discriminated against in this way. I think to talk about one concrete policy area, what, what immediately springs to mind when I think of these, these three elements coming together, so budget cuts, disciplining workers and privatisation, is ATOS, <laughs> so it's sort of like a, a big, big bogeyman private company who don't contribute much of use to the world, uh, putting people on disability benefits through these tests which, are, which don't really involve doctors or any, any medical staff and then finding loads and loads of people fit to work who, I mean, you know, by most common understandings wouldn't have been. So could, could you talk a bit about those, those work capability assessments? It's probably one of the elements of the war on disabled people I imagine uh, our audience is, is already a little bit familiar with. Yes, and I think that it is a victory for campaigners that your audience will now be aware of the work capability assessment because when we first started campaigning against it in 2010, 2011, no one had heard of it. It was actually a measure that was developed under New Labour, but when the Tories came in in, in 2010, they rolled it out without first piloting it. Um, already before uh, May 2010, there was at least one case of someone who committed suicide as the result of a decision that was made from that assessment to take their benefits away. So very early on, we were seeing what the impact of this would be. So what happened was incapacity benefit was replaced by employment and support allowance. And to access employment and support allowance, you had to go through this new test called the work capability assessment, which, as you as you say, um, it's not health professionals. Well, it is health professionals carrying it out. It's not specialist health professionals carrying it out. Um, that was part of a, the deliberate design. It was also outsourced to private companies. And as you say, Atos was the, the first company to, um, to get the contract to deliver the work capability assessment. And what we found from the beginning was a large number of what we call wrongful decisions. That was people who are simply unable to either work or to, for some people to either work or even to carry out the work search requirements that that, that came in through um, through employment support allowance. Um, and so people, housing benefit, I should add, housing benefit is tied to employment support allowance. So you lose your ESA, you lose your housing benefit. So some people were in a situation where they were losing all their income uh, and were unable to to carry on. At the same time, you had cuts to frontline services, which meant that advice agencies were no longer there, advocacy was no longer there, and also social care support being cut back meant that many people no longer had support to even check their mail, let alone complete a long and compli complicated benefits assessment. Added to that, you have the fact that the assessment was deliberately designed to 
what we call deny disability, to find people fit for work and to deny the existence of disabling barriers which stop them from finding employment. And that design was informed by uh, developments within the insurance industry in America in the 1990s. Um, Methods were developed there to deny paying out of claims. Um, Unum Provident was, was notorious for that. And they actually they actually uh, help design the work capability assessment. I should add, it's not just the work capability assessment. You've also got the assessment for personal independence payment. So uh, PIP, we call it. PIP was brought in by George Osborne to replace disability living allowance. He said in June 2010 that by doing that, it would cut 20% of the DLA budget. At that time, um, DLA benefit fraud was no more than 0.5%. So you were going to be cutting cutting it from, you know, a large number of genuinely disabled people. Um, so d- at the moment, disabled people spend our lives going through assessments uh, because the other thing is that the WCA and the PIP assessment um, happen every couple of years. Um, so people, th- these are lengthy forms. You have to collect a lot of medical evidence. People also have social care assessments. So disabled people's lives have become completely dominated by being disabled now. So you constant, you, your job becomes proving you're disabled. It's almost yeah. like a full-time job because you it, just have to constantly do it. It is a full-time job also because disabled people tend to, we tend to be congregated within like the lower income deciles. So we live in communities that are full of other disabled people. Um, so we're also supporting each other. Mm. <laughs> so it's, it is a full-time job. Is the war on disabled people over? The reason I ask that is because there there is a narrative about this government that they've ended austerity in the last budget. Rishi Sunak did increase the budget for every department. They're still below where they were in 2010. But do you think there's been a a ceasefire in this war? I mean, ceasefire makes it look like the disabled people are (laughs) seriously damaging. But has the war war come to a close? Uh, no, I mean, not <laughs> austerity is definitely not over. Um, it hasn't been reversed. None of the measures have been reversed. But uh, social care, the situation is just getting worse and worse and worse. I know that uh, Sunak put some money for social care recruitment in the last budget, but it's nowhere near what is needed. We're facing a major crisis. Disabled people living in their own homes can't recruit personal assistance and local authorities are still going in and making cuts. We, we know that local authorities are going bankrupt. Um, I think after Croydon uh, issued their Section 114 notice, uh, what I understand is that other local authorities were told uh, not to issue them. So, What's a Section 144 notice? Section 114 is where you're basically saying we're bankrupt, we've got to get the administrators in. Right. Um, my understanding is that others have been in a similar position, but um, the gov- central government doesn't want too much noise about it. So we, we know that local authorities can't even meet... Um, can't, can't, can't meet disabled people's needs. Um, they say that they're still meeting their legal obligations, but we would definitely question how far that's true. Um, finally, I suppose to, to close the conversation, I started the interview with, with some challenges for progressives and, and the left that you've made very, very articulately, both in the book and you know, elsewhere. We've had conversations about this before. So 
I suppose to, to close the conversation, what, what would you say to progressives, to people on the left, who you think might not have centred disability issues sufficiently in their politics or their activism? What would you like the big takeaways to be from, from your book and the issues we've talked about today? To start with, I wanted non-disabled people to read it. I thought if two non-disabled people read it, then it would be a success. So it's been a success. Um, I really wanted uh, progressives to not be fooled that disability is a marginal issue. We are 21, at least 21% of the population. But more than that, I think, is the, the fact of that intrinsic relationship between disability and capitalism. I think that to understand disability gives you a very good insights into the way capitalism works, how brutal it is, but also in some ways how cunning it is, the way that it, um, the way that the majority of people don't properly understand disability. They do see it as a matter of personal tragedy rather than understanding how, how political it is. I think shows how, how crafty um, capitalism can be. So I would encourage people to see through that and to develop an understanding of how disabled people's oppression fight, fits into the wider fight against capitalism. Ellen Clifford, thank you so much for speaking to Downstream. And The War on Disabled People, I absolutely do recommend this book. Winner of the Bread and Roses. <laughs> Prize for Radical Publishing, available with Zed Books. Um, Ellen Clifford, thank you for joining us on Navarra Media. Thank you. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.